0: ...on Maynard.com.au... It's not very often I pay a visit to Newcastle West when I'm not looking over my shoulder and walking fast in the middle of the night. But today, the bright sunlight is streaming into a brand new vinyl record shop here in Newcastle West. It's got a lot of history, and we're going to hear some great music today because I'm here with Chris Dunn. How are you, Chris? Thank you, man. How are you? What brings you to Newcastle? My mother brings me back to Newcastle. Ah, oh, good mum.
1: Yes, she's getting older now, so it was time to come back and be the good son after spending nearly 30,
0: years away. Paint a bit of a picture for people, we're surrounded by, uh, how many records would be in this store? At least five or six thousand at the moment, I think. (laughs) We've got quite an impressive range of black flag t-shirts. Oh, you've got to love the t-shirt. It's art at its purest. You're attached to the Edwards Cafe here, which is in Newcastle West, just down the street from the Audi place across the road from what is across the road here? IT Central. So are they trying to make this the hipster precinct of Newcastle? I think it's sort of just happened to work that way. We are standing in the X drive in dry cleaners and it's pretty cool and I'm looking around you've got your old speakers from every old stereo you ever had and that was done by the other partner in the shop in the
1: Edwards, Chris Johnson, where he got a whole bunch of deceased you might say hi-fi things and made a piece of artwork out of it.
0: How did you get fired up into the record trade? What led you down this evil path of hanging on to vinyl records?
1: Well of course going to Tyrrell's records as a boy. Newcastle in the 70s. Exactly, walking up and down hundreds
0: Street is a 15-year-old visiting five or six record shops
1: where I started.
0: And like most Australian cities, that's how many they had. And my history with you begins because you were working behind the counter at Phantom Records in Sydney in one of the first import record shops that I knew. And and that really blew my mind because I was still at high school and this guy had come back with Elvis Costello and The Clash and Sex Pistols, 7-inch vinyl in different colours. And this just wasn't in any shops because you couldn't buy it in Australia back then. (laughs)
1: import stores were the prelude to what we now call indie stores, but Australia had this thing called import stores, whether it be White Light Records and Revolver in Sydney or Archie and Jugheads, which was a prelude to Missing Link down in Melbourne. Every city had its import record store because the majors, of course, only released 50% of what they actually able to release, but people wanted
0: the stuff, so someone had to get it. And Let's just quickly, off the top of our head, what were the names of some of the record stores, the great import indie record stores at the time. It was Waterfront of course, there was Red Eye, Phantom, Anthem, Town Hall, Central Station. And the record plant which is probably
1: one of, for Sydney, one of the most important late 70s, early 80s import stores because it specifically had great relationships with the English and was able to get all that English new wave stuff which is a different again to what Phantom were doing which of course was centering around the Birdman, Detroit, American style of
0: things. So Sydney had things going on. Each record store had its personality. There was one yeah. underground there near the town hall that we couldn't quite remember the name on that just concentrated on soundtrack. You'd go in there and that guy would know exactly what you wanted. He certainly did. Like, mm. that soundtrack, even we
1: sent people to the soundtrack guy. Yeah. You know, and classical music, of course, which was under Michael's music room, which was mm. in the town hall station. But Anthem Records, which started in town hall station in a carriage, was known as the head shop because it's where all the German kraut rock and weird It's psychedelic sort of stuff. So each (laughs) record shop had its own distinctive sound and taste. It did, it did. While we all crossed over into things because we all got customers, there were certainly people who worked in each store who centred on certain sounds. Although I don't think it's as big as it is now where kids seem to only be into the one sound. And that's what's happened with record stores if you go to the capital cities. Besides something like Red Eye, a lot of them have become genre stores. Like the metal guy couldn't find metal in Melbourne, so he started a shop. The rap guy couldn't find a good hip hop shop. You know, Central Station wasn't servicing his hip hop, so he started a hip hop shop. Title Records, which is in Sydney and Melbourne, which is a more older, eclectic sort of shop, centering in on more books as well as thought
0: provoking music. And what are you trying to do here in Newcastle? Because Newcastle, being a smaller market, has a reputation for complaining and being cheap. How do you start a record store here?
1: My main idea behind it is have a record shop again where people can go and find all sorts of different sorts of things and I don't split it up into genres. I put everything A to Z except for the Australian New Zealand section and that's something Waterfront and not we had from Phantom as well, we had a separate
0: Australian music section because Australian music was so strong. On the shelf there I can see you've got the Cat Empire on vinyl and do Australian artists release much on vinyl? Australian
1: artists have started to release everything on vinyl but the main thing is that they only release a limited amount so if it really starts to be popular the first 500 they sell really easily and then of course suddenly six months later it's a $400 record because no one can get it Mm -hmm. and somebody wants it
0: something like Iggy Pop here his new one there post pop depression you got a price of $45 which is roughly for a major
1: label record is roughly around where most of them sit is around 40 dollars to 45
0: dollars what double J should sound like when I'm putting a a CD single on, sometimes the import price on that was $20 in 1991 dollars, or a Kylie seven inch was $7 in 1991. So scaling it up, that's not too bad. When people sometimes come in and they go, oh, they're
1: rather expensive. I go, well, your wages have quadrupled over the past 20 to 30
0: years, yet Mm. the record has probably only doubled. That's probably good quality vinyl. It's not just some k pressing. There was KTL records in Australia that used the recycled vinyl. They cut down the tracks to fit them all in blockbuster 20 original hits original stars be sure to get the best from k-town lp 599 tape 699 They sounded terrible.
1: They did. The the Bowie reissues are are, are some of the most specific ones that we noticed. Because in Australia, we had those RCA thin vinyl ones pressed at the old Estor plant down in Melbourne, which had been there since the
0: 1940s, and they were thin. Tell me, whatever happened to the Painters and Dockers pressing plant that they bought, or they bought a press down in Melbourne? Did they keep that? Has that ever continued? I think that's
1: changed hands about three or four times. Those machines are now part of what they call Called Zenith, which is one of the few pressing plants that does exist in Australia still. The latest Drones album was pressed there, and that looks pretty good. <laughs>
0: With most collectors, because I meet a lot of them from sci-fi to cosplay to whatever, a lot of them never even open the stuff out of the packet. How many of these people are buying these $45 albums off your shelf and putting them on their record player at home? I reckon 60-70%. to
1: And I think that is another interesting thing about what has happened to the record shop. It's not just a place where you go to buy your new music. The record itself has become like an antique Mm. in the way that we watch antique things on television. And music on the vinyl has turned into that level but then they get a whole other world of kids who come in who are looking for something tangible. They've got it all on on their computers or downloads or streams but then when they really love something they're coming back to the idea of having something tangible and the CD doesn't quite
0: do that for them, but the vinyl does. If you had to pick a track off Iggy Pop's new post-pop depression album, what, what would you? which one would you pick off it? I actually like Paraguay,
1: the last track. And the whole thing about this album is that it gets back into those two Bowie albums that he did in Berlin, using Josh Holm from Queens of the Stone Age as his mentor. Yeah, I just- needed someone else to bounce off when he does stuff and Josh Holmes definitely brought a point of making a serious great music album the same way that Bowie has done with his latest album. He wanted to leave something that says I existed and I'm not that Pop star from the 80s when I was selling millions and
0: millions mm. of records, that I'm actually an artist and this is my art. Chris Dunn, as a record store owner, would you have had much truck with Bowie or was he a bit too mainstream for most of your career?
1: Well, I'm the child of the 70s. Bowie was very important to me, was very influential, you know, along with people like Mark Bolan and Alice Cooper and people like that. What when was, was your favourite there? track for it? Oh, I mean, it's no. A tough one. It's that, very difficult. That is a very, it's more about an album. It can be a Aladdin saying one day,
2: Gin eh, on
1: his back, Gin eh, love or it can yeah. be low. <laughs> Don't you Aladdin Sane came out when I was 13 and I got it when I was 13 and I played it to death when I was 13. Every track is something to me. But the same can be said for Low and Heroes because that's when he toured Australia for the first time. There's that great scene at the start of Dogs in Space. Oh, yeah. and That was me in Adelaide as an 18-year-old lining
0: up to see Bowie supported by the Angels. You had the record shop where us DJs would go. You had the record label, the Waterfront label. We got our taste from all the records record shops around town, where did you get your taste from? How did you know what records to buy from
1: overseas? Reading, reading magazines. When the days when NME was three months down the track on the newsstands, we used to get airmail copies. (laughs) The Australian Ram magazine, did that count? That kept us up locally, but you could never beat getting an airmail copy of NME because that was absolutely straight off the press in England. So you knew months beforehand when things were coming out than the kid who just went to the local news agency to buy it. Not many people would go to the extent of getting an airmail copy back then, having distributors who could get everything that came out, which is something that I don't find
0: today. Yeah. The Triple J staff and the Double J staff, I was just thinking you had Sammy in there, you had Daniel in there, you had Arnold in there, you had Simon in there, all these per Jane in there. I think there was about five people and that was just when Triple J was a local Sydney station. Five people working as kind of programmers. It's no wonder they sort of found the music they did, because as well as you guys coming to them, they could go to these record stores and have a look. Well, that's what they did. Daniel Driscoll
1: specifically was a big waterfront customer. And while Arnold might go to Phantom or the record plant to sort of get his fit of things, and Arnold had a great background in
0: working with New Wave from his time when he was at Virgin Records. The and downside of this system, people, is that if someone there didn't like your stuff, you might not get a on as well. That was the downside,
1: wasn't it? Well, that was a downside for us as a label is that Waterfront Records as a label never really got, and specifically a Sydney label, never really got airplay out of Triple
0: J. We got spot plays for certain things from certain DJs. There was no playlist with Triple J then. People like myself would do the morning thing, it was a kind of entertaining thing, a bit of a retro spin to it, and dance stuff and that. There was Bigsy, who who would have played lots of your stuff. George Wayne would have played lots of your stuff, I would have hoped. George apparently did like especially early stuff, The
1: Particles and John Kennedy and that Mm. sort of stuff.
0: What were some of the acts? Was The Lighthouse Keepers and Mr. Floppy with you?
1: Yes, they were. Well, Mr. Floppy was a very interesting... With the unbearable lightness of being a dickhead. What a great (laughs) album. Because Mr. Floppy had released their first 7-inch themselves, the Morrissey (laughs) 7-inch. So they did 500 of them in Melbourne, but then the Buzzcocks came to Australia and they took a hold of it. And it became this whole other thing. Steve Stavrakis, my partner, did a deal with Mr. Floppy to reissue the 100,000 Morrissey single,
0: which we eventually went on to sell 5,000 copies of. If you listen to them musically now. The unbearable lightness of being a dickhead on CD, I got it on eBay and it was very, very expensive. There's not many oh, copies really? of that around. It was a genuine copy, not a burnt one. Very expensive.
1: that sort of period when CD Mm. was just starting to come in. Some crazy live stuff
0: done at the (laughs) (laughs) Lancet Hotel as well. It sounds like the audience is attacking the stage and the band's fighting back. It's just great. I did do that then. Was there ever a waterfront compilation CD or a place where a lot of the great artists were all on one spot? Well, it was actually. And we didn't do it locally, we did it with
1: a company in Germany. It's a really great sampler, too, because one side was all our hard bands at the time, hard ons. Mass Appeal, The Hellmen.
2: If you were ever-
1: Then the other side, we put on things like Rack Cat. Well, my
2: baby has got a gun, and I'm so afraid That she's
1: going to use it and take her to my grave Chad's tree.
2: Different colours, the different roads He knows he's getting close
0: you can feel it in his bones He's just crossing off, crossing off the miles The
1: Wittershins who came out of the Lighthouse Keepers
0: And that was called could have been a contender which is quite ironic really
1: (laughs) because we never were the contenders so so
0: what was the process of signing a band back in the early 90s what would the band get for it and what would you get and how much money was involved it sounds like it was just like a bit of a handshake totally
1: right up until the stage of about 1990 everything was a handshake deal probably about 50 50 the bands actually owned their own recordings, paid for their own recordings. It's only with bands like the Hard Ons that we started to actually pay for the recordings and then become the copyright owner. A lot of the Waterfront reissues, that's why they come out on all sorts of different labels, because they still own it. Yeah, but even the Hard Ons, at the end of the Waterfront label's life, which was around 1994, Steve actually gave the Hard Ons back all their recordings so probably around a hundred thousand dollars worth of recordings that he just literally gave back to them the only copyrights that he kept were tumbleweed Mm. because that was worth something Happy Hate me nots, who are an important band to him. I've
2: read your story a lifetime ago Making my mind up, making my mind up Do something for me and I can see You're an angel
0: How did you find these bands? You'd just go out and you'd see a band. exactly the opposite. We were a shop
1: and that was the great thing about it. These guys came and bought records. John Kennedy or JFK and the Cuban Crisis, which was the first thing on Waterfront, he took that to Phantom. Phantom didn't want to do it. Steve was working at Phantom and he was like, oh, I'll start a record label.
2: If you'd married me, I'd be good to you, Jackie O. You could change your mind and break my heart You could change your mind and break my heart
1: the hard-ons were customers of ours at Phantom. For months, they hassled me to go see see them. You know, these little kids go, come on, come and see a band. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, I'll come and see you. And when I did, I was, I was
0: like, brilliant. This is what music's all about. Was it the Hopeton Hotel that would have bands on during the day on a Tuesday, and people would chuck a sickie, and they'd spend all day in the pub watching bands on a Tuesday? That's very true. But we couldn't do that. We were working in a record shop. <laughs> We'd just
1: get the after effects after they'd had a few beers, and they'd come down and spend 50 bucks on buying some records which was good. And as
0: someone who ran a record label, so you had to get through the uh, the programmers at Triple J, but as well as that, each announcer had the little pigeonhole and you'd usually put a copy of a record in every announcer's we'll pigeonhole. Do. Because there was no playlist, you could play stuff even if the programmers didn't give you the nod individual announcers would. I do remember a distinct time
1: when Michael Tun was doing the nighttime show. It was probably about 95 96 and No Effects was certainly not a band that Michael really liked but he went into a meeting and was like we have to start playing no effects I'm getting so many requests to play this that we need to sort of put it into some sort of loose airplay thing that did start Mm. happening in the 90s
0: So what do you listen to now? I listen to new music. How do you find it now? It's the opposite
1: problem. There's so many ways to find new music. There is not a day where I don't discover some new artist and and these days I have to go, do I think I can sell it to someone? Mm. How do you work that
0: out? Because that's a pretty hard decision too, even with all your experience. (laughs) It is, because I think like a Sydney person. (laughs) You don't want to be doing that in Newcastle, (laughs) people. Back to the record store, as Waterfront and through your career, what's been the biggest one you thought, oh this will sell, and it was a big flop? The one you thought, this is going to be big and no one it. That's easy, the Benedicts. What happened to the Benedicts? The Benedicts
1: were from Brisbane originally. Two brothers, Ben and his brother Leo. And they were just a really great, soft, acoustic go go-betweens-y sort of band. They played with bands like the Honeys and the Widdishans and Chad's Tree and that sort of crowd, the clouds that were going through Sydney at that point in time. We pressed 500 vinyl, 500 CD. We probably sold 200 vinyl and 50 CD's. So I think we even paid for the recording. We paid about $10,000 for it to be recorded as well. It was literally our biggest flop without par.
0: You mentioned those Brisbane bands, this reminded me of the Ups and Downs who supported Painters and Dockers. I'd forgotten that whole dream pop sound they had and yeah. they sounded as good last well, year they were, as they ever they did. They were one of the
1: two bands that brought me to Waterfront, the label. I brought the hard-ons in and I paid from my Christmas bonus that I got from Phantom Records, I paid $1,000 to get
0: an Ups and Downs song, one song recorded. Their sound was rather advanced. Love, for str- I remember I used to play it on breakfast, good breakfast right. track. one that you you surprised? You were going, you just got one or two copies in. You mentioned sugar cubes earlier as being as sitting around the store for a while before people got into well, it. Well as a,
1: as a shop we read about new bands and we got new things
0: in. Seven inches of
1: course were a big thing back then.
0: Are they picking up as much with the collectors now? I mean they look great but I don't see Boy, many around the I store have, here. I have a bunch of seven inches up there waiting for a box to put them in. Do yes.
1: people go for them as much? Not really because actually in price they're the things that can be off putting a 7-inch is really about $15, 16 $17. Right, just and two songs, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. That can be a bit of a barrier because it's not the instant throwaway thing that a 7-inch originally was. But so the Sugar Cubes didn't release a 7-inch, they only released a 12-inch. And we didn't sell a lot of 12-inches, and so this is, what,
0: 87. That was birthday. And the 12-inch oh. of birthday was pretty good. It
1: was an amazing sound, and I remember getting it, and it wasn't something, that of course, that Waterfront would normally sell back then wasn't either. It wasn't so much an indie sound, wasn't a dance sound. No, exactly. But we got it in because we experimented. must have sat in the shop for at least two or three months, or you could basically say from the time it took NME to get to Australia. And then Daniel Driscoll from Triple J came in. When he came in every week, we used to play him the new releases. Weirdly enough, I think we probably had showed him that before, but, of course, it didn't really mean anything. And then suddenly uh, what about this sugar cube thing? This, look, they're suddenly getting all these write-ups. Shouldn't you be interested in this? Oh, yeah, OK. He took it back with him. And within two months after that, they were just walking out the door. Hey.
0: Chris Dunn here at the Record Bar in Newcastle, in Parry Street, just in Newcastle West, right next door to the Edwards. Come have a bit of a look here, say hello to him. Pick us a track to go out with here. Well, you've got a brain full of memories, you've got a shop full of records. What do you want to pick? I think a
1: track from Sticky Fingers. Because sticky fingers are definitely one of the acts that are ready to blow big in this country. And it was probably my most asked-for piece of vinyl. What about rum rage?
0: <laughs> Where can people find you online?
1: Facebook at the moment, under the Edwards Shop. Specifically that, the Edwards
0: Shop. The, yes, the Edwards way. Shop. If you've got some questions, you're having trouble finding stuff, Here's the guy that can find it for you. Chris Dunn, thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Maynard. Ooh. It takes a
2: beating up animal to pull them all away Rushing me around and it's sending me astray Don't you lie to me as we finally Gotta handle on the doors that we open and shut Packing on all my suitcase cause I'm going far away I'm going to a place where the credit cards don't decline on me As we finally gotta handle on the doors that we open and shut Cause everything we do and we put on display, maybe you and me are a little the So, what do you think of or what do we make? She took her time.
0: dot com dot au